Good morning, everyone. My name is Ben. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection Church. It's great to be with you this morning, have a chance to share God's word with you. We are in a series in the life of Abram. Actually, it will be Abraham this morning, so you can, I can stop saying it the other way. Try to remember to say it that way. Um, but we're looking at him because in Romans it says he's the father of everyone who believes. And so he is sort of the original man of faith in a sense. And we get to see faith play out in different ways as he goes kind of through ups and downs in his life, um, as he kind of is, is seeking after these promises that God has made him, but they haven't come yet. And today is sort of another installment, whereas you're going to see there's something to do with his names, that's going to be changed, circumcision, some other things happen today that kind of further the promises. But we are going to read uh, from Genesis 17 together. We're going to read the entire chapter, and I'm going to read it for you, and then we'll kind of jump into our sermon this morning. So from Genesis 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between you, or between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any circumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she will become, shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. 
Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is God's word. And he gives it to us because he loves us. He wants us to know him. We're going to spend some time reflecting on it together. I have an acquaintance in our denomination uh, who does what he calls tattoo outreach. And this guy comes from a background where tattoos are, are very normal, very much a part of, of, of that culture. And now he loves to go around and he especially goes to like tattoo conventions. I guess such things exist. But anyways, he goes to these things and he asks people the stories behind their tattoos. Now, of course, a few tattoos are just someone liked an image or someone dared them to get it or something like that. But, but nearly always, or very often at least, there's a story behind the tattoo. Perhaps it's a picture of a person who was meaningful to them or it reminds them of a special time in their lives or it celebrates an accomplishment of some kind. If there is a story, if there is a meaning behind the tattoo, then every time the person sees it, every time they, they look down, they are reminded of what it represents. That special time, that special person, that special place. The physical and tangible, like the ink on the skin, it represents, some of some, it represents for them something emotional or spiritual or relational. And did you know that God operates in similar ways? Not with tattoos, of course. But earlier in Genesis, when a flood wiped out a huge, a huge percentage of the, the humans and animals on earth, God puts a bow. He puts a rainbow into the sky. And he said, whenever you see the rainbow... That's a reminder of my promise never again to destroy the earth with a flood. The physical and tangible thing you see up in the sky where the the sun meets the rain, um, that's a reminder of a spiritual promise I'm making to you. See, all along in Abram and Sarai's story, God has been making promises to them. But what you notice is the promises get, get more and more specific as time goes on. There's more and more proof of them. Remember two weeks ago when we did that whole thing with the covenant? Remember all the animals that got chopped in half? And God binds himself to fulfilling the the promises of land and heirs? It wasn't just words anymore. There was this ceremony to sort of ratify it. And then last week, even when Abram and Sarai tried to outflank God's plan and like, we're going to have a child through different means, the whole thing with Hagar, um, God rejected that plan, even though he took care of Hagar. And today we see God adding some physical and tangible reminders of his promise because he changes their names and then he gives them the sign of the covenant and circumcision to sort of further the promises, to sort of push things along. But before both of those things happen, we see hints of something else that's part of the way that God interacts with Abram and Sarai, namely that there's sort of a two-sidedness to the covenant or there's a voluntariness to the covenant. And I'll explain that in a moment. So these are the three parts I want to walk you through. First, we'll talk about the voluntary covenant. Second, new names as reminder. And then third, circumcision as reminder. Now, last week in Genesis 16, when Ishmael, the son of Hagar, was born, it said there, if you recall, Abram was 86. But as chapter 17 opens, Abram is all of a sudden 99. Those little markers of time, I think, are important because if you're just reading straight through the book or if you're reading it in like a a Bible reading plan, it seems like one chapter happens immediately after the next. And and doesn't 17 immediately follow 16? Well, no, there's actually a 13-year gap between chapter 16 and chapter 17. Now, think about it. What were you doing 13 years ago? As for me, I was a fresh-faced, newly married campus minister. I had no kids. 
drove a Subaru, didn't even own a trampoline yet, like no life insurance, just kind of living on the edge. Uh, 13 years ago, like half our church wasn't born yet. There, you know, there's so many little kids or whatever. Think about your life. What were you doing 13 years ago? I bet it was dramatically different from whatever you're doing right now. See, God had promised Abram and Sarai a son, but year after year ticks by. No pregnancy, no change. Sarah's probably in menopause. Uh, It it challenges one's faith. That's what we spoke about last week. But then one day, 13 years pass, God shows up again. He says, I am God Almighty. And that's the the, the Hebrew El Shaddai. Uh, God Almighty. And he says, walk before me and be blameless. Now, hold on a second. In past appearances, in past visions, when God showed up, when God spoke to to Abram, he always led with a promise. He always said something like, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be your shield. It was just promise, promise, reassurance, reassurance. But not here. God says, you know, I'm God Almighty. And then he gives what we call an imperative. He gives a command. He says to Abram, walk before me and be blameless. Now, let's talk about that. What does it mean to walk before God? Are we, we're not literally speaking about going for walks, are we? Well, in the Middle Ages, I mean, maybe it was before that. The, the one I read this week was from the Middle Ages. The theologians developed a Latin phrase to describe what it means to walk with God. And the Latin phrase is this, quorum Deo. And it literally is translated in the presence of God or before the face of God. And what they meant by it, was that they're trying to express how all of life takes place in the sphere, in the realm where God rules and reigns. All of life is quorum Deo. All of life is is before and under God. And so to walk before God doesn't just mean that you observe Christian morality or that you perform a few religious ceremonies now and then. It means your whole life, each piece of your life is informed by God. The way you play pickup soccer you know, is, is quorum Deo, it's before the face of God, that, that you knit as a Christian and you eat as a Christian. There isn't an area that's untouched uh, because in every area God is there. So when God appears to Abram and says, walk before me, that's what he means. Live your whole life before my gaze. Uh, let your sheep herding and your hospitality and your hunting or, you know, whatever Abram did in his spare time, it, it's all informed by my presence. Become a holistic, become a a well-rounded believer in me. Secondly, he tells Abram to be blameless. Now, blameless, it doesn't mean perfection. And as we've discovered, (laughs) Abram is far from perfect. He's going to screw up again in the future. You know, spoiler alert. Uh, uh, He he wasn't perfect in the past. He's not going to be perfect in the time to come. But to be blameless implies a kind of integrity, a kind of wholeness. To be blameless doesn't mean you have, don't have sin. It means you continually take responsibility for the sin you commit. For instance, as all parents discover, parenting is not about being perfect. Such a thing is impossible. Parenting is about making right whenever you wrong someone. Parenting is about rebuilding all the things you tear down. And so is being a good friend. So is being a good, good employee. You can't be perfect at any of these things, but you can be honest and have integrity. This is what God is commanding him to. He said to live as blamelessly as you can, but then to, to be sort of ruthlessly honest and ruthlessly repentant when you cannot. What you should notice, both of these commands, <clears throat> to walk before God and be blameless, um, is that relationship with God, covenant with God, it's something you, you, you go into, you opt into by deliberate choice. No one accidentally becomes a Christian. 
No one accidentally becomes part of the people of God. Abram had choices to make. He could choose to walk Coram Deo and be blameless. Or he could choose to not have a relationship with God. You see, I think we sometimes glaze over this because we're like, well, of course he believed. No, no. He might have distrusted God. He might not have believed the promises. He might have walked a different direction. That was an option. But what we see is that Abram did believe. He did trust. He did obey. He did choose to walk blamelessly with God all his life. The path of his life was toward God, not away from God, even though he wasn't perfect. See, the promises God offers to Christians today are are, are not so very different. God has promised to those who believe in him, his love, his faithfulness, his uh, forgiveness from sin. He says, I'm going to send my spirit into your heart. So he promises eternal life. He makes, uh, you know, piles of promises. But there's always been, since Adam, since Abram, an aspect of trust that's expressed through obedience. And the question is put to each one of us. Will you live your life before the face of God? Will you align all aspects of your life with with his law and character? And if there's kids or teenagers, if you're listening, sort of tune into into me for a moment. There, There is something that can happen, particularly in Reformed churches like ours, because children are, are, are often baptized very early in their life, that we don't always emphasize the importance of making a decision to follow Jesus. See, look, we hope and pray. And actually, whenever we baptize kids in our church, we often pray uh, that they won't know a day when they don't know Jesus and love him. But please understand this, kids, teenagers. There, there is a point where you have to decide for yourself. The faith of your parents isn't enough to, to kind of carry you all the way along. At some point in your life, you need to opt in. You need to decide before God that you will live like Abram lived, Coram Deo. Now, what about for those of us who are a little bit older? Well, let me give you another example. In our Presbyterian world, we have a, our annual, annual meeting coming up. It's called General Assembly. And any ordained elder in our denomination can attend. Now, because of COVID and borders and stuff, no one from Canada, I don't think, is going. But one of the, one of the main things we do together when all these, it's like a 1,500 elders or something gather. But one of the main things we do is we consider what are called overtures, which are a proposed change to the way we operate as a denomination. Sometimes they're theological. Other times they're just practical and administrative. But people submit them ahead of time and they get posted online so everyone can read them and think about them in advance. Anyways, all that to say, one of the things submitted for debate this year is is an overture on how we apply the Ninth Commandment and a few other New Testament commands to our lives on the internet. Now, the Ninth Commandment, you know, you can do, you can pause the video and do a little test, see who knows what the Ninth Commandment is, but the Ninth Commandment forbids bearing false witness against our neighbor. And some of the other commands referenced in this overture uh, talk about speaking only what is helpful for building up each other in love. So we're taking time as a denomination to debate this point, and maybe we'll appoint a study committee to write something for us on um, how do we apply the Ninth Commandment and these other things um, on Twitter and on Facebook and on our social media posts. What, what should we do about gossip and slander and name-calling and backbiting and, and just general meanness that often takes place, you know, on the internet? Because, see, to be a Christian... To be a person of faith, it means more than sort of uh, attendance at a Sunday service. It means alignment in every part of your person with God's laws. And that includes all your, you know, your witty comebacks on social media. The offer to Abram, by God, it's contingent. Walk before me. Be blameless that I may make my covenant with you. 
And Abram, we consider him our father in the faith because in verse 3, he falls on his face before God. That's a, a pose, a posture of worship and submission. With his body, <laughs> Abram is saying, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll follow you. And the important question for us to consider is, will you as well? So that's part one, the voluntary covenant. Now part two, what I'm calling new names as a reminder. Abram agrees to the terms. And in return, God begins to promise him things and to expound on his promises to him. He says, Abram, you're going to be a father to a multitude of nations. And we've heard something like that before. Uh, But then in verse 5, there's something new. God changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Now, names in the Bible, it's never just names. They're always full of meaning and purpose. And Abram means exalted father. It was sort of this, this good, solid, ancient yeah, you know, middle Near Eastern name or whatever. It was a name associated with wealth and prestige, even a noble line. Because you can actually kind of translate it, exalted with respect to my father, meaning your father was noble or you're exalted because he was a great guy or whatever. Uh, and so that's sort of what Abram meant. But Abraham means father of multitudes. See, to be an exalted father, that might just be a term of respect for an older man, even if he doesn't, you know, have any children. But there's no mistaking this name Abraham. He's not just going to be an honored elder. He is going to be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. So think about it. Every time Abraham introduces himself to someone new, or when Abraham leaves talking with God and goes to the household servants and the hired men and whatever and says, hey, my name is now Abraham. Well, he's reminded of God's promise to him. That he's going to be a father and a grandfather and a great-grandfather, you know, and so on. The stakes have been raised. And think about this. Who can give another person a name? Well, only a person superior in status and authority can name another. Parents name their children. Not the other way around. Bosses and owners, they, they, don't, they don't name you. Uh, but, but they bestow titles that an employee cannot claim for themselves. God names Abraham. It's God who tells Abraham who he is and what he will be. And I think this is important. I think a lot of us try to name ourselves. And not often. I mean, sometimes we change our, our literal name that people call us. But, uh, but go a little bit deeper than that. We, we build in our, in our minds, in our bodies, a sense of identity. We have things that we tell ourselves. On the positive side, we'll say things like, you know, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm a responsible employee. I'm, 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 a, I'm, a, I'm a good friend. I'm a fun person. I'm a caring mom. You know, whatever it is. Sometimes we, we name ourselves positively. And of course, on the negative side, we also name ourselves, right? We say things to ourselves, I'm a terrible husband, I'm lazy, I'm stupid, I never do anything right, I'm no good at grade three, you know, like whatever, we, we, we name ourselves both positively and negatively. And think about this, Abram could have named himself many different ways. On the positive side, courageous explorer, mighty warrior, uh, favorite of God, generous uncle, like all the things he really was. Or on the negative side, passive husband, a coward in Egypt, the disbeliever of promises. To live a life of faith means you hold yourself out to God and you allow him to name you. It means God tells you who you are and you let go of all the names, all the titles, positive or negative, that you have given yourself or that others have given to you. And you listen to the voice of God. 
I mean, not too long ago, we finished a series in the book of 1 Corinthians. feels like ages ago. But, um, but in, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul calls them saints. What is a saint? Saint's like a, a hero of the faith, like a model. Like if we're going to tell someone, here's a great Christian, we'd say, like, look at this person. They're, they're a saint. And when you read 1 Corinthians, you're like, this church is a, is a hot mess. Like it, it's immature. There's all kinds of sin going on, all kinds of problems. But it's God who tells you who you are. And you receive that by faith. And God is telling Abram here, you aren't just going to be a noble older man. You're not just going to be important because of who your father was. You will be the father of a multitude. And then in verses 6 through 8, God reiterates a whole number of the promises he's already made. Nations, kings, an everlasting covenant, the land of Canaan, and so on. But I want you to skip down to verse 15. And it's not just Abram, now Abraham, who gets a new name. Sarai does as well. Her name is no longer to be Sarai, but to be Sarah. Now, it's actually unclear, like, like semantically, what the difference in meaning is. Uh, they sort of sound the same or whatever, but God clearly intends for it to be different. Sarah definitely means princess or queen. And it's quite likely that the change in name signals a change in, in status and circumstance for Sarah. She is now being explicitly promised that kings will come from her. A couple different times, God, God says, to her, like, no, it's going to be Sarah. She is going to be the mother. Also, to, to be a, a princess, to be a queen, right? What does that mean? It means you will have the chance to be a mother or a grandmother to a king or queen. Fun Bible fact, Sarah is the only woman in the Bible whose name gets changed. She's the only one. And we see how greatly she matters. God chooses this woman, not Hagar, not any other uh, woman. It's Sarah who will be the mother of multitudes, the mother of God's people. And from now on, whenever Sarah goes and introduces herself to someone new, she knows what's being claimed. She knows the kind of trust that she is being called to. The promises aren't fulfilled yet, but God's on the case. You're going to be a princess. You're going to be a queen. We see in verse 17 the difficulty of believing these promises. It's not easy to claim, claim a name like princess or father of multitudes when you don't have any children. And I don't want to stomp all over next week's sermon because this is going to come up again. But Abraham laughs in verse 17 at the promise of God. Now, does he laugh with delight? Does he laugh with unexpected joy? Does he laugh cynically? Does he laugh mockingly? Does he feel awkward and not know what to do? Frankie will answer that question next week. So stand, stand by for that. Uh, but verse 18 shows us Abraham's not fully committed to this idea of Sarah having a baby. He's like, well, what about Ishmael? He's here. He's 13. He's in good health. He's, you know, becoming a man. Could Ishmael be the son? And God says, no, 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 not Ishmael. I'll take care of him. He, he gets to have, you know, he's going to be the father of princes and stuff like that. He'll be fine. But Sarah will have a child. And she's going to bear a son. And you're going to call his name Isaac. Now, you, do you know what the name Isaac means? It means he laughs. I think God has a tremendous sense of irony and humor, by the way. But in other words, kind of what's going on, kind of like at a bigger level here, is, is God is saying, you laugh, Abraham, with incredulity or unbelief or however you're laughing, but God is sort of laughing with delight. And every time you look at your son, every time you like, you know, open the tent and call him in for dinner or whatever, you're going to remember that you laughed. And that it's sort of, it's funny in like on, on multiple levels. Three names in this passage are given. 
Each of them a reminder of a spiritual promise. Each of them a tangible reminder of something intangible, right? That's where we started. God is giving tangible things to remind them of spiritual promises. Now, every time Abraham looks at Sarah, and every time Sarah looks at Abraham and they call each other by name, every time they call to their boy, they're going to be reminded of God's promises to them. Friends, what do you think of when you think of God's promises? How do you feel? Do you feel cynical? Do you feel delighted? If you are a Christian, you're called to believe in a God that does and promises the seemingly impossible. But let's move on. We've got to talk about circumcision. This is part three, circumcision as a reminder. If you kind of go back to verse nine, circumcision is inserted into the middle with the names on either side. But we see this, again, another escalation, another reminder of the covenant Abraham is making with God. God has promised him land and heirs, and God now commands Abraham, along with all his household and family, to circumcise every male including 99-year-old Abraham. And if you look at verse 11, it tells us there, the cutting of the flesh is a sign of the covenant, the, the, the sacred promise that God is making with them. Now, circumcision may seem like an odd choice. <laughs> like, why circumcision? That seems like a strange way to ratify a promise, but let me kind of explain some of the things going on around it. First, circumcision was not new. It was not invented here by God or by Abraham. It was actually practiced kind of sporadically, but in different places in the, in the Near East and Africa, you know, long before Abraham and the, and the Hebrew people came along. So it was not unknown to them, but they, it was done for a variety of reasons, hygiene, religion, you know, whatever. But this is the first time that circumcision becomes the marker of a promise from God in, in, in this significant way. Now, why circumcision? It still seems like an odd choice. Couldn't God have given them like a different marker of the promise? Like he did a rainbow before. Couldn't it have been something different? Think about it this way. The main promise that Abraham was, Abraham and Sarah, but Abraham was having trouble believing was that he, he had a hard time trusting that God would in fact provide an heir, a child. Even in this passage, he's like, well, what about Ishmael? He's having a hard time still believing it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. It had been decades of waiting. They're getting older and older. And look, think about it. it. We all know how children are conceived. And if you don't, you know, ask your parents later or whatever. But, but I don't think there's any question that God gave them a marking of the man's sexual organ because of how it relates to having children. See, think, when, whenever Abraham saw himself, whenever Abraham slept with his wife, it would have been this reminder that, that God was promising to give them children. It was marked in his flesh. God is going to do something about this. He's going to come through. I know it seems like a long shot. I know it seems impossible. But God is telling them, I haven't forgotten about the promise. You're going to conceive. You're going to have a child. Now look, the the physical sign of circumcision was never just that. Remember, the whole theme we're working on today is that there's these, these physical and tangible reminders of spiritual promises, just like the rainbow was a sign of the promise never to flood the earth again. So here, it's not enough for Abraham simply to be circumcised without an accompanying robust faith in God. The lesson of circumcision is you have to continue to live by faith. You have to continually trust God's promises. Abraham is, to, is trying to believe that God is still going to bring them a child despite their age. Abraham received the sign of circumcision before he had a child. 
He's still waiting. Now, we kind of hear, it's going to be within the year, so he knows it's kind of going to be soon, but he's still waiting. In Deuteronomy 9, uh, there's this retelling of the event where, um, where Moses went up on the mountain to get the law from God, and Israel sort of loses faith down in the valley, and they worship the golden calf. And, uh, and Moses comes back down, and he's, he's really mad, and, and he breaks the stone tablets. I really kind of empathize with Moses in that moment. And, and then he grinds them up and, like, and mixes it with water and makes Israel drink it. It's kind of a wild story. That's in Deuteronomy 9. But in Deuteronomy 10, God's like, look, we'll make some new tablets. I'll, I'll rewrite the law on them. And then God tells the people something very interesting. This is Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. He tells them, circumcise the foreskin of your hearts, and don't be stubborn. And we learn, again, that physical circumcision was not enough. It was always supposed to be accompanied by something spiritual. It was always supposed to be a sign of a person who trusted God's promise. And the Israelites in Deuteronomy 9, they may have been physically circumcised, but that wasn't enough. Their hearts had to be changed. There had to be an accompanying internal faith. Outward circumcision is always supposed to be accompanied by inward circumcision. If you only have it in your body, Deuteronomy 10, that's not enough. Abraham has to continue to live by faith. Now, there's something else that's kind of strange in this section that I need to explain. You may think, well, of course, Abraham should be circumcised. That makes sense. This is a promise related to him and his future heir. Great. Okay, check, you know, check that box. But when God gives a sign, it's expansive. If you look at verse 10, it applies to every male in Abram's house, Abraham's house. And in verse 12, he's like, and all the males to come, every newborn uh, male child that's born, if you get a new servant, you know, whatever, um, anyone who joins the house, even if they're a foreigner, they too should receive the mark of circumcision. Now let's think about that for a moment. If the external sign of circumcision is supposed to be accompanied by internal faith, why does God tell them you should apply it to those who do not yet believe and might take years to believe? Well, the answer is because the external and the internal, they're not always tightly connected in time and space. Sometimes, like with Abraham, they clearly are. But with an eight-day-old child... They clearly are not. With a foreigner who joins the house and doesn't know anything about Yahweh, the God of Israel, it will likely take some time. So in a sense, God is telling Abraham, some people become part of the people of God and partakers of the promise all in a flash. And it all happens at once. The external and the internal, they get together and it happens. Um, but once, if you are a believer... You first include your children in the promise through the external sign. You give it to them when they're eight days old. And then over time, over the years, they will learn the importance of the accompanying internal faith. And especially for children, but for the foreigners as well, but for children, the sign and the faith are not connected in time and space. Or there's like a long span in between them. They eventually get connected. Now, this is kind of a tricky concept, but I think it's an important thing to grasp if you haven't grown up in a Presbyterian or Reformed church and you want to understand why our church operates the way we do. With Abraham, God tells him, you first include your, your, your male children, at least, with the people of God via circumcision and you hope and you work and you pray so that one day they will believe the promises of God for themselves. The physical, tangible mark of the people of God, the way they were included with the people of God was circumcision. But with the coming of Christ, 
All Christians now believe that that mark has changed. Circumcision is not required anymore. The covenant has expanded beyond Jewish people to include all the families of the earth. The promises made to Abraham and Sarah have all come true. All the families of the earth are now included. And what now marks a person's entrance into the people of faith in the New Testament? It's not circumcision anymore. It's now baptism. And we see it in the book of Acts when people join the family of God, when they believe in Jesus, they're baptized with water in the name of the triune God. And if you read Acts, most of the people in Acts are like Abraham was. They have faith, uh, they express it immediately, and they receive the sign of baptism as adults. And it all kind of happens together all at the same time. But we also see in Acts, just like in Genesis 17, on multiple occasions, that entire households all receive the sign of baptism seems to imply that more than just adults get it. We aren't told the composition of these households, but if they were anything like Abraham's house, there were probably people of all ages. Now, why would that be? Babies can't express faith. Small children, they might know a few of the facts, but they don't have the mature faith of, of, of an adult, of a 40-year-old. And the answer is because baptism now functions like circumcision. It can either be applied to adults who express faith, or can it be applied to the children of those who believe to mark their entrance into the visible people of God. And just like circumcision, it doesn't save them. It doesn't guarantee anything. It just functions as a mark that this child belongs to the people of God and and he or she stands to inherit the promises if they accept them. But it's like in Deuteronomy 9 and 10. It's not enough just to get the external mark. There must be accompanying internal faith. But this is how God has always worked, through families. Through parents teaching their children, from children hearing the gospel, being part of the people of God long before they ever understand it for themselves. Baptism is God's sign to God's people that marks them out. And it's to be accompanied by internal faith, sometimes right away and sometimes later. Now look, I know some of you who attend our church, they don't agree, you don't agree with how our church understands baptism. I'm glad you're here. I'm I'm glad you're part of our church. What I want for you most is to give baptism in this passage careful thought. Give it careful consideration to see how these signs work out, not just in the lives of individual believers, but in the lives of families. There's just very little biblical precedent to suggest that baptism is a declaration of one's faith to, to one's friends and family. All along, we're saying this is the way God is marking his people out. And I think there's strong evidence from the book of Acts that baptism was applied the same way circumcision was, sometimes to adults, sometimes to entire households. So look, we um, and me, on behalf of the elders of our church, we would encourage you, if you haven't been baptized, but you're a Christian, like, let's, let's make it happen. If you're, if you're a teenager, if you're an adult, you don't, you don't need to delay. There's nothing special you need to wait for. And if you are a Christian and your children haven't been baptized, we can make that happen. There's, there's nothing too late. The, any age can work. Abraham was 99. Ishmael was 13. Like there, all the other ages in between all work. But look, we love you. If you disagree with us, that's fine. We'll still love you. You can still be part of our church. We're glad to have you, but we'd like for you to think about it. Now, finally, we'll end on a note that we can all agree on. If you, did, if you didn't like that other part, maybe you can get behind this. Look at the end of verse 13. A little sentence worthy of our consideration. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. How did God know that circumcision would be part of an everlasting covenant? How could he know that that this would continue and that all of Abraham's descendants would continue to believe? 
Well, he knew it because it was planned that Jesus Christ would be an ancestor of Abraham. That he would be marked in his flesh on the eighth day, just like God commanded his people here. If you read Luke 2.21, this is what's recorded. Jesus receives the sign of circumcision. Jesus, following in the line of Abraham, he would be the capital K king promised all these years before. Jesus would, would make a sort of a capital N nation, including all the families of the earth, far more than just Jews, all the promises made to Abraham and Sarah finally fulfilled. When you go to make up your mind about God, when you go to opt into the covenant, you don't just have to think about baptism or circumcision or new names. You have Jesus Christ to look at. You have his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. He is the assurance that all the promises God have made are yes and amen, that you can believe them. So my prayer today, my hope, is that Jesus would make us more like himself and that he would continue to draw all the families, all the children of the earth to himself. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you that you give tangible reminders to your people, that you include families in the way that you work. You've divinely set this up. Please help us to believe your promises, whether we're young, whether we're old, whether we're new to the faith, whether we've been kicking around churches for a long, long time. Help us to believe. Help us to follow you in faith. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.